Titus chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 8 through the end of Titus. That's found on the Church Bible on page uh, 1371. Hear now the word of our God. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. And we thank you for this word that you have spoken. That it is profitable and relevant for us today. We ask that your spirit would work through this reading and now through the preaching to apply it to our hearts so that we might not be unfruitful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a temptation to split this passage. Uh, I think a lot of pastors split this passage we've just read up because verses 9 and 10, uh, 9, 10, and 11 contain a a unit of thought that can easily be a full sermon. Um, But I've chosen to look at all of it together because I think all of it comes under what verse 8 is saying. Verse 8, Paul uh, once again states what he's been stating all throughout Titus. In Titus, he keeps talking about good works in, in a variety of ways. And in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, he's given us very specific areas of good work. Uh, But now he comes to think about it more generally and once again encourage us to good works. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. In this passage then, from here to the end, 
I believe we see Paul taking this thought of good works and, and doing four things with it. He affirms good works in the Christian life. He contrasts good works in the church. He prioritizes good works in the church. And then we see good works maintained. And those are the four points I want to make this morning. I want to warn you ahead of time that each, each point will be shorter than the previous one. So, so don't be afraid when we spend most of the sermon on the first thought. And that is, this faithful saying about good works is affirmed. Verse 8, it's affirmed. In one sense, we could just move on from the point there, right? It's affirmed. There it is. But I, I think part of what we must do before we leave Titus is consider what Paul means when he says good works. What does Paul mean when he says good works? Because if I were to stand outside any number of evangelical churches this morning and ask a hundred people as they walked out, so it couldn't be our church, some church that has a hundred people walking out, and I asked a hundred people as they left, what do you think good works means? I'd probably get a number of responses, but I think many of them would get boiled down under one of two thoughts. Many would say that good works is something you do towards the less privileged. Something nice that you do towards the less privileged. It's an action done to help someone less well off than you. That's what a good work is. I think... I think a large minority, at least, if not a majority, in the evangelical churches today would say that is the epitome of a good work. Something you do towards someone less well off than you. Uh, so not many people are going to pat me on the back if uh, I go to a millionaire's house and snow blow his driveway for him without getting paid. He could have paid someone. Right? No one's going to say, wow, Nathan's doing such good work. He's, he's caring for that guy that lives down the street who has all that money. No, we, we think of good work as when I go to the poor widow's house who only has social security and not much of that, and I snow blow her driveway. Right? Many of us would say there is a, there is a priority there. Uh, but is that all that it means to have a good work? And, and then I think the majority coming out would answer with something as simple and generic as a good work is being nice. Right? A, a good work is when you're nice. You do something nice. We, we need to thank God, and I, I think in prayer we need to thank God more often than we do, that we live in a society where people still care about being nice to some extent anyway, and where there is an interest by many in caring for those less well off than us, because both of those things are very important, and they're important biblically. But is that what Paul means when he talks to us about good works? The answer is no. 
We, we can go to a single text and find that Paul has something distinct in mind here. We can look at Romans 12, verse 2, where by the Spirit's power, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see there how the Holy Spirit puts a contrast between what we are told to learn and do good things acceptable to the Spirit is the antithesis of the worldly thing. So when when Paul's talking by inspiration here about good works, it is necessarily in some way distinct from what the world calls a good work. The the two things side by side might often look very similar, but they're not the same thing. Here the Holy Spirit shows these two things distinct. Well, if we were then to try to define what does the scripture say a good work is, what, what would be a definition of that? How would we understand how it's distinct? Uh, you could write a book, couldn't you? Uh, but I, I think we can just turn to one verse to see most clearly that the most basic distinctions between a good work that's just being nice and a a Christian good work, a God-directed good work. And that would be Micah 6, 8. I, I think I put it as the front of your bulletin so that you don't have to flip a bunch of pages if you need to look at it. But I think most of you know what Micah 6, 8 says. Uh, you, you can sing what Micah 6, 8 says. I almost had us do it, but I decided not to try to acapella and throw that one in there um, just in case you all weren't familiar enough with it, but Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, this verse is powerful because I, I think it shows us both where there is a seeming overlap between a Christian good work and a worldly good work, and it shows us what's different. There's the overlap, right? That the definitions that people might give would include things about justice and mercy. That's why you're doing something for someone less well-off than you. There's an overlap. But there's also distinction. First, Micah 6.8 shows us that a good work is that which God has revealed and required. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires. And you see, when we speak very generically, something can sound exactly the same. Be nice to others, especially those less well off than you. But then how do we apply that? What does that look like? How do we understand that? We don't have to go far in our culture to see how using the same language 
doesn't mean the same thing. Just take 10 minutes to look at how people are using the word equity or equality or justice. You see, the the world can say, seek justice, love mercy. But what does that mean? The believer has no excuse not to know what that means. He has shown you what he requires. He has shown you what is good. By the way, that, that includes in Scripture God saying, not only are you to not show partiality to the rich, but you're also not to show partiality to the poor. I'm, I'm not going to get political here, but I think we have a vote coming up in about a week about a law that has to do with the question of equity and equality with taxes that, that may show partiality to, to one side of it. I'm not telling you how to vote, but, but I want you to think about that. God's word reveals what his standard for these things is, and, it, and it's an equal standard in the sense that the word equal means in the Oxford Dictionary, and not how we define things, right? So he, he sets the, the thing before us. The world does a lot of good things in the name of justice, a lot of good things in the name of mercy. In fact, we give thanks. I, I even intentionally prayed this in our pastoral prayer about common grace. That is the things that God uh, reveals and showers. He gives rain to the good and the wicked. And through judges, sometimes he gives justice, regardless of whether the judge is wicked or righteous. There's common grace as opposed to his special grace that is where he saves the human soul. But once saved, our standard for how we define justice and mercy and good works is set by God. And we can't claim that God will be pleased with a good work that isn't good by his definition. Uh, Charles Spurgeon actually goes so far as to say, in a sermon from Titus on good works, he says that if you are not in union with Christ, you have never done a good work. And Spurgeon's not alone in saying that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, says something very similar. It takes time to emphasize that we are grateful for the good things that are done in society by wicked people, uh, but they do good things. Um, We're thankful for that. We should rejoice in that. We should celebrate that. But that is not good in the eyes of God unless it conforms to what he has revealed. He's commanded it. He's commanded the way in which we're to go about it and the heart with which we're to go about it. More on that in a moment. And so it's not a good work unless you are one who is doing it redeemed. And just to make sure we see that that's not only a couple of people who think that, when the Congregationalists said, let's make our own confession, they copied and pasted Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16. 
by hand because they didn't have copy and paste. Copied and pasted it over. Chapter 16, you can go and read it in the um, Savoy Declaration. And when the Baptists decided they wanted their own confession, they copied and pasted chapter 16. So you just pick one of the English confessions of the 1600s and turn to chapter 16. And they all agree with Spurgeon. Really, Spurgeon's agreeing with them. But, but that's what Micah 6 8 is saying. He has shown you what is good. He sets the standard. He defines justice and mercy. And the second thing I think Micah 6 8 shows us about these good works, what sets the world off from ours, is that last statement walking humbly with our God. We could be tempted to think of Micah 6.8 as defining three possible ways of being good. You can seek justice. You can love mercy. Or you can walk humbly with your God. And if that's how we're approaching Micah 6.8, we can say, well, a non-Christian does two out of those three. It's a good work. But that's not what Micah 6.8 is telling us. It's giving us this, the precise manner. It's giving us uh, the way, the, the system that God requires. That God desires this system, which is pursuing justice with a merciful heart while humbly on our knees before the Lord. And if you ditch the humbly on your knees before the Lord, he doesn't count it as a good work. Why? Because you weren't created to just do nice things. It's not why he created us. He created us to glorify him. And so he counts something good when we do the, to use the world's terminology, the nice thing for his glory. Humbly before him. The, the epitome of doing nice things, to an extent, to, of seeking justice and, and so forth, but failing in the walking humbly with our God, is, it has to be the Pharisees. Isn't it interesting, we, we read with Bill this morning, I didn't realize Bill was the reader when I picked it, or I might have done something a little shorter. It's a long, dark passage, isn't it? Matthew 23. But right at the beginning of it, Christ says the Pharisees were saying to do the right thing, but they weren't doing it. Now, if you look just historically speaking at how the Pharisees lived in their day and age, although we see a lot, we see all their, their sinful attitudes put on display in the Gospels, Nonetheless, if you just look historically at the kinds of things they were doing, they had a lot of mercy programs. They cared a lot about, outwardly, about justice. They had social things that they did for those in need. But what Christ comes along and exposes, which is why we all think of them as these 
heartless people is because Christ exposes that their hearts weren't doing these things out of mercy or humbly before their God. And so Christ says, woe to you. You stand in danger of hellfire. Clearly, it's not a good work they're doing. Even though from a worldly perspective, looking at the Pharisees, you would have said, boy, they do so many soup kitchens. They do private house calls for the widows and their communities to make sure that they're not dying and starving. Now, they're doing all these things that might perhaps cause us to blush about our mercy ministries. But they were doing them without mercy. And laying on these requirements that were a burden for everyone else. And they weren't humble before their God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Right? It's the epitome of someone who does good works, right? Without it being a biblical good work. Remember what else he prays? I give to the poor. I... They, they tithe their mint and their cumin and their fennel or whatever. So biblically speaking, as we look at Titus, we see that we're being called to something more than being nice. Something different than what the world is calling on us for. We are being called to a countercultural, God-glorifying humble and meek good work. Who is sufficient for these things? But that's, that's what he's calling on us for in Titus. Now, praise God, sometimes we can go about doing that good work and we can even sometimes partner with the worldly being nice thing a little bit in seeking to care for people, right? It, we can assist uh, in the past. Our deacons, for example, have had people sometimes fill out a, a form for Salvation Army. And Salvation Army, you know, uh, does stuff with social services so, so that we might give something to the poor. But we also might be helping the poor get the, the good work of the state. And we should be thankful for that. But we also need to be clear that a good work, biblically speaking, is what God has commanded. We don't lay new burdens on other people that God has not commanded in his word and call it good. And we do it humbly for the glory of God. This is what Paul wants us to affirm. That we are to live our lives, to put it another way, live our lives for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. That's what Paul's saying. Or, or as Christ puts the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, don't forget, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's a biblical good work. Those two things together. Well, like I said, the first point's the longest point. Good works are affirmed. As a Christian, we, uh, we can celebrate Reformation Sunday. We can say, uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by my works, lest I should boast. But we cannot follow that up with, therefore, who cares about good works? Because Titus goes way out of his way. Paul in Titus tells us 
to affirm these things. Second, good works then are contrasted in the text. So verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 talks about the contrast to good works done for the glory of God is a church that is divided and bickering and constantly debating. Verse 10 is a church that is these things often because it listens to divisive leaders. And that might not even be an official leader, right? It could be just a member of the congregation who has a way of swaying people and is constantly bickering and divisive. And verses 10 and 11 then give instruction to the leaders of the church. And I do think 10 and 11 here, it could be to all of us, reject and admonish. That would be Matthew 18, wouldn't it? Uh, That each one of us has a responsibility when we see a brother or a sister being sinful to rebuke them. And if they reject that rebuke or or to confront them about it, then you bring a, a witness with you. And then after that, Matthew 18 says, take it to the church. That is, take it to the leadership. Uh, But in this instance, uh, many commentators, and and I would agree with them, think that 10 and 11 are beyond that stage. This is the church leadership specifically. The use of the word reject and admonish are words that have kind of an official feel to them. What we're seeing here is church discipline on the part of the leadership. That That doesn't remove all of your responsibility to pursue Matthew 18. But there's a special responsibility, Bill, right now, on you and I, uh, to confront the divisive person and to challenge them. And there's grace and there's love in that, isn't there? Uh, The first rebuke, then there's a second rebuke, right? The The first rebuke, admonition, might be, stop it. Stop causing all these debates. Drop that. That's not important. Drop it. The second one might be, you haven't dropped it. You need to keep your mouth shut. Maybe even to the extent of, you need to not participate in talking during Sunday school. Just listen. Because you don't know how to tame your tongue. But if that's also rejected, then this person is to be, or ignored, then this person is to be rejected. There's other scriptures that talk about what that means in a church discipline situation. Um, But uh, in these three verses, then, we we have the opposite, right? There's the good works that is for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. And in contrast to good works is a church where we are all bickering with each other for our own selfish gain. I'm not going to spend any time talking about what genealogies means here. There's a couple of uh, uh, theories as to what what exactly about genealogies was going on there. Were people proud? My genealogy is this. Or other people think it's the, you know, there's certain genealogies in the Old Testament where there's a, a couple of generations left out. That was a normal thing in the ancient Near East. You might list 18 generations. Really, there were 20 and you just skipped over two of them, uh, and Grandpa gets listed as begetting, begetting his 
his great-grandson or something. And that was normal in the ancient Near East. That wasn't thought of as being deceptive or anything like that. Well, it's suggested that maybe they were debating that. What are the gaps? What did those people do? What's missing? What fun things are missing? Or what horrible things are... You know, Whatever the genealogies, it's unprofitable. It was unprofitable for them, so the Holy Spirit made it so we don't even know what they were debating. It wasn't profitable for them. It's not profitable for us. When I start hearing some of you arguing over genealogies, you know, descendant of such and such a reformer, I should get two votes at the meeting. And someone else says, well, I'm a descendant of uh, you know, William Bradford or something. I should get two votes at the meeting. And you know, once I start seeing that kind of bickering here, then we elders can step in and, and rebuke it. But the idea is that it's all about me, isn't it? Whatever that thing might be, these disputes, these divisions, they're not for the glory of God. They're foolish. They're they're contentions. They're strivings. They're not out of love for neighbor. They're the opposite of good works. This is a really hard one, I think. Because in Scripture, and especially through Paul, there are a lot of things that are doctrines that are important enough to defend in addition to the cross that don't directly affect our doctrine of salvation. So our, our tendency might be to read this and say, if it's not about the cross, we shouldn't even bother talking about it. And yet Paul defines a lot of things talks about church government. He talks about uh, how we approach the sacraments. He, he talks about how we live. He talks about our households. He just spent chapter two uh, annoying a lot of people about things that might seem secondary to the gospel. And so he, he's not saying ignore anything that isn't just about atonement. But he's saying don't let those things imbalance the life of the church. Don't let them drive out the unity of the gospel. Don't let them become the focus so that good works are forgotten. You're fighting over your genealogies and someone's going home hungry. That's a problem. So we have good works affirmed. We have a church in which good works are contrasted and therefore lost. And we certainly don't want to be that church. We want to have strong uh, holding up of what the scripture teaches on all things, but we want to have those things prioritized as the scriptures prioritize them so that we may live in the bond of unity and peace. Well, Speaking of prioritized, then the third thing in this section is good works prioritized. And we see this in verses 12 through 14. We might think this is just Paul adding in a bunch of personal concerns. But notice how he prioritizes this. Let our people also learn to be really clear with their gospel message. Well, that'd be a good thing for us to be really clear about, wouldn't it? Let let the people be really clear and learn how to state the gospel as beautifully as I just stated it in chapter 3, 4 through 7. I mean, those are good things. 
Obviously, Paul wants us to be able to speak the gospel clearly and beautifully. But notice the priority he puts here. He says, let our people also learn to maintain good works. And included in those good works is meeting urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Learning. Because doing good things for the glory of God and not for ourselves. Out of love for neighbor and not out of our own pride. Is not even a naturally easy thing for the believer, is it? So You're already saved, but you need to learn what loving God and neighbor looks like. So he's already called on us to maintain it, verse 8. And some of your translations have devoted there. I like both, actually. Devoted gives that personal passion, doesn't it? I'm devoted, I'm zealous about something. But I think maintain reminds us that we have to stay devoted. It's a process. It's a daily activity. You have to maintain your first love. Throughout your life. Or you grow cold. Isn't that where Revelation 2 and 3 tell us? Warn us? So we need to be taught to maintain good works. How are we going to be taught? This is where I think verse 12 is so powerful. Probably have never heard anyone say Titus 3.12 is powerful. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. Powerful. But you realize what Paul's doing. He's prioritizing the congregation's learning of good works over his own personal desire. He wants his dear colleague and friend Titus To winter with him. He wants to have that time together. Uh, Second Timothy, which is written probably a few months after Titus. It it seems clear as you read it carefully that that Paul's aware that he doesn't have much time. Maybe he's already feeling uh, Rome's pull to bring him back into captivity there and And there he will die in the Colosseum. And what more natural than to see your two dearest colleagues, your sons in the faith. He wants to see Titus. He wants to see Timothy. But he prioritizes when Artemis or Tychicus gets there, come to me. Now, Tychicus, we don't know anything else about Artemis. Tychicus appears other places in the New Testament. I'll let you, I would have years ago said, use a concordance and look them up. But now well, you just type in Google and there it is. And you can find the passages yourself. But it's clear from those other passages, Tychicus is a fellow preacher. 
He's actually the man, as it turns out, who goes to take Timothy's place. So Timothy can go and see Paul. So it's most likely that Artemis is another preacher who is the one that Paul ends up sending to Titus to take his place. But you see the priority Paul's giving. If this man doesn't get there in time, Titus won't make it to Paul for the winter. And Paul and Titus may never see each other again. He wants to see him. But wait until there's another preacher in place who can teach the people to maintain good works. Paul has his priorities right. And the priority is the church of Crete not being left to its Cretan lifestyle. It needs a minister to preach the word and to preach and teach not just uh, uh, some esoteric gospel, but a gospel with legs that loves God and loves neighbor and lives and cares for those in need so that the church might be fruitful. That's his priority. And then finally, in our passage, in this letter, we see good works maintained. Because as I said a few minutes ago, who is sufficient for these good works? For good works that are humble, when it's not natural to us, most of us anyway, to be humble. To, to be humble doing good works when we know we could get acclamation for it. Or we could do other things that the world calls good works and get praise for that. And maybe no one's praising you for what the Bible says is good work. Who is sufficient? Our hearts are wayward and incredibly deceptive and wicked. And so how are we to have good works maintained? Look at that last statement. The letter ends, grace be with you all. Amen. It's been a heavy letter, hasn't it? I think I told you the first sermon on Titus that of all the books in the Bible, Titus was one of three that I am most scared to preach as a preacher. Not because I don't agree with it, but because it, it's hard. It's heavy. I'd rather re-preach Revelation again than preach Titus again. Uh, Thankfully, I got plenty of other books to pick from, but uh, it's a heavy book, but it ends with this grace be with you all to whom is that grace given the church? Yes, but realize it's the church in Crete that is not yet set in order. This letter is sent. Titus receives it and And almost certainly, when he received it, the next several Sundays, as he made his way around the island of Crete to the various congregations, he would read this letter out loud to them. It would would be him saying, this is what we're going to do. Let me introduce my next sermon series. Here's the outline for you. Straight from the Apostle Paul. This is what we're going to work on. And he would read it. And chapter 1 says, set the church in order. And he's there reading that 
in one Sunday. He's reading it. He's reading about how their older people aren't being gospel older people. Then their younger people aren't being gospel younger people. And servants or workers, or however you translate that, aren't being gospel workers. And their citizens aren't being gospel citizens. And and this is all in one week. I've spent six months throwing it all in your face. One week, just reading it here. How heavy the heart must be. And yet, before the church is set in order, before Titus has had a chance to make all things right, as if Titus had that ability before he left for the winter, nonetheless, grace is extended. Not from Paul, but from God. The one whom they have failed to love by being worldly. The one whom they are failing to exalt by being selfish. Extends them grace. You know, this ending to Titus is an abridged version of what Hebrews 13 declares. Paul just doesn't explicitly say it all, but Hebrews 13 says everything that this one sentence is intended to convey at the end of Titus. That the God of peace make you complete in every good work to do his will. Him working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's saying the same thing. You're not in order yet. You Cretan Christians are all liars, inhuman beasts, lazy gluttons. Grace be with you all. Thank God. Because grace be with you all as we end this letter.